Well, good morning, church. Man, what a joy. Isn't it good to be back together? Praise God. It's so, such a gift. So we're going to study God's word. If you go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue walking through this letter from the Apostle Paul, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse 24, where the Apostle Paul is picking up on the text we were looking at last week, where he, he says, to put on the new self, the one, get this, created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. Note this verse, verse eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So see how many of you can finish this saying. Ready? The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. So I remember the first time I heard that phrase and understood it. I was a kid, and we were watching our family's favorite movie as a family, like when my aunts and uncles came over, Grandpa, Papa and Mama came over. If we were going to watch a movie together, we were going to watch The In-Laws with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. And we watched that movie so many times. And we, I remember the first time we played it for Papa and Mama, and Papa was laughing so hard that we stopped watching the movie and just watched him. Like he was just falling apart over there laughing. Well, in the movie, Alan Arkin, he's this unassuming dentist 
and uh, he's got a patient in the chair. His, his daughter's just gotten engaged. He's selling his patient in the chair. His daughter's engaged and so on and so forth. And the patient said, well, tell me about the father. And he says, I haven't met the father. And he says, call it off. The patient says, call it off. You haven't met the father. And he's like, well, she's going to marry the son, not the father. And that's the first time I heard it. He says, the son's the acorn. You got to look at the tree. You got to find out what's going on there. So you got to call off the wedding until you meet the father. So the idea being in this, this phrase, this idiomatic expression, the idea is that there are certain traits that fall to us, sort of. We don't necessarily self-consciously aim at them, but they just, we inherit them, sort of, from our parents. So, for example, I could, I could tell you some things that I love. I, I love um, I love reading. I love gathered worship. I love the, the smell of a freshly oiled baseball glove. I love pitch and catch. I love the smell of a tire store. I love r- the sound of Ray Charles singing, right? I could go through all this list of things, and what I'm actually telling you is about my dad, right? These are things that my dad loved, and I just sort of fell into them. I, I fell in love with these same kinds of Things. Well, our text is talking about what does it look like for us to grow up into the likeness of our Father. He's using that language. Look at me, look, look with me at verse 24, chapter 4, verse 24, again, where we began our text. Put on the new self, created according to God's likeness. So the Father's likeness is in view, and then look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, so after all those uh, commands and exhortations, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's the pulse of this passage, is an uh, imitation pulse. This is what the Father's like. This is what his people, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. We, we're growing up into his image, and this is what our God is like. You know, our culture talks a lot about be true to yourself. It's almost the maxim in our culture. Above all things, if everything falls apart, just make sure you're true to yourself. Um, That's not a Christian idea. Christianity would want to amend that by adding a really necessary modifier. Christianity wants to say, be true to your new self. Because there is an old self in Adam and there is a new self in Christ. So we aim to be true to the new self. We rebel against the old. We got a new rebellion and we have a new identity. And our new rebellion is against what we used to be and our new identity is likeness of God in and through Jesus. So two handles in our text for how we do that. How do we pursue the likeness of our Father? Number one, walk in love. Walk in love. So again, he's given these specific exhortations in chapter four, verse 25, all the way up to this summary of those exhortations in chapter five, where it says, you see it there in verse one, therefore be imitators of God and walk in love. So if you take that summary, walk in love, that's what's written on the envelope, and inside that envelope are all the exhortations in chapter four, verse 25 and following. Then we go back to chapter four, verse 25, we say, what does it mean to walk in love? What does it look like for us to grow into that image? And it starts with what? Speaking the truth. It's in your notes, by speaking the truth and guarding the gospel. Verse 25, putting away lying, speak the truth. You ask the question, what's the father like? And I mean the ultimate father, God the father. What is God like? Well, God 
is a speaking God. And Christians know and are convinced every time he opens his mouth, he's speaking the truth. If his lips are moving, it's true. That's why we love the Bible, right? This is why we, when we go to Scripture and we study Scripture, we can have every confidence when God's mouth is moving, which is every page of Scripture, he's telling the truth. We abide biblically because we're abiding in the truth. So God is trustworthy. That means that if we're growing up into the likeness of our Heavenly Father, we too are becoming trustworthy. The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. We too speak the truth. We speak the truth in love as God the Father does. And we're trustworthy because God the Father is trustworthy. You think about how does Christian fellowship, how does local church get strong if we're lying to one another? Right? if we're all putting on airs and keeping up appearances, what, what if the new way of doing church became something where we didn't, we didn't keep up appearances, we didn't pretend? We came out, we walked out into the light and there was a sense of this, what Ray Ortland calls the gospel plus safety plus time. And we said, I'm just gonna be honest with you, I need grace, I need help, um, I need encouragement, I need you, I need friends, right? There's no sense of my Superman cape is flapping in the wind. I'm just gonna tell you what I need as a follower of Jesus. No gimmicks, no pretense. What a, what a refreshing fellowship that would be. What a refreshing small group, life-giving context that would become. Think about truth from another angle. So what if, what if the church cared more about truth than the preservation of a brand, than the preservation of an institution. Two years ago, something remarkable happened. So there was a, a report that was commissioned in order to tell the real story of the founding of the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the real story uh, announced the reality that the four original founders of the flagship seminary were card-carrying racists. And they not only were avid defenders of the institution of slavery, they didn't even want any limits on the institution of slavery to be brought to bear. That was the original setting. And that report, interestingly, that report that came out two years ago was commissioned by the president of that very seminary. Why? Why would you do that? That's really bad for brand management. But that's really good if your motto, and the motto of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I have the mug at home, is trusted for truth. If that's your motto, though it may be bad for brand management, it is very good if you want to be trusted for truth to not airbrush your history, but to come clean with how we came into being as an institution. You, you read through biblical history, and what do you see? You see lions. You see people who are ready to speak the truth at great personal risk and great personal cost. You look at young Esther and she calls out Haman. He walks into the house and she names him and says, him, let me tell you what he's been up to at the, at the cost, potential cost of her own life. You look at Nathan. Nathan confronts the king, King David, when he's at his worst. He is not in particularly good form when Nathan tells him a story about a godless, murderous person and he looks at David at the end of that story and he says, when I told that story about that murderous rascal, that scoundrel, I was talking about you. Bold move. John the Baptist, 
calls out the highest officer in the land and he says, Herod, it wasn't cool for you to take somebody else's wife. That's sin, that's adultery, you'll be judged for it. And John the Baptist lost his head for saying that. But it was the truth and it needed to be spoken. And Christians love the truth. What, what if the church was the one place that you were guaranteed to not hear spin where you were gonna hear the truth, we were gonna speak the truth in love? That, friends, that's compelling, right? Truth speaking, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, that second point, is guarding the gospel. That's the second half of that point that I just gave you, speaking the truth and guarding the gospel. And I think that second point is here as well. I think there's something bigger at play in these words because the literal translation of verse 25 would be this. Therefore, putting away the lie. Definite article, singular noun putting away the lie, speak the truth. It's a call for local churches, like the Church of Brook Hills, to preserve the truth with a capital T over against the lie, the truth of the gospel over against false gospels. What's the truth? Paul uses this phrase, the truth once for all delivered to the saints. What is the message of the gospel? It's that God is holy and he is deserving of global exaltation. That we humans have sinned against this holy God and we are deserving of eternal damnation. That Jesus Christ died in, on the cross in our place so that he could secure our total salvation. And then what's the truth of the gospel? That Jesus Christ is gonna return and he's gonna bring his people from every nation into the new creation for the purpose of global adoration. That is the biblical gospel. Look, we sing ourselves deeper into that gospel every Sunday and what we do when we sing is together we are putting away the lie and we are establishing ourselves again afresh Sunday after Sunday in the truth, we're putting away the lie. What lie? That there's anything in the universe more worthy than he is. That's the lie we put away systematically as a people. Next truth, so walk in love by battling unrighteous anger. You see those words, be angry and do not sin. In other words, this hopefully goes without saying, but not all anger is sin. God is angry at sin but he is not sinfully angry. The Apostle Paul can get angry. The, I mean, his hair is on fire. In, in the letter of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is coming, guns blazing, because he cannot believe what they've done to the God. He says, who has bewitched you that you would turn away from justification by grace alone through faith alone, and you'd put your Gentile friends in a headlock of Old Testament Jewish law? He says, not today. I mean, he is, he is very real. He is very direct and confrontational. Not sinfully angry. But he's angry. Be angry and do not sin. You, you ever find um, that people with anger management issues quote that verse a little bit too often? You know, not all anger is sin. You know, uh, that, what I just did yesterday, that was righteous indignation. No, you need counseling. Like what happened yesterday, that was not good in any sense. That wasn't righteous indignation. Jesus turned over tables, right? Those, those verses will be so quickly quoted, but Jesus wasn't having a temper tantrum. That wasn't, you know, he didn't get his way, so he's just going to start flipping tables and stuff. That's not what was going on there. And yet, Paul is saying, 
Be angry, but don't sin. So you think about what is righteous anger. Righteous anger shows that it's righteous by being under self-control, accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. You, you can almost see, look at verse 31, you can almost see anger growing right here. It's coming out of hiding. You see this uh, leveling up. Bitterness, can't see that. That's usually festering, right? Anger, wrath, all right, now we can start to hear it. Shouting, slander, so the internal bitterness, internal anger, starting to work its way out. Now we can hear it, now we can see it. Um, our call from this text is be true to your new self. Fight unrighteous anger. Don't justify unrighteous anger. Fight it. And then he goes on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's not, that's not suggesting that, you know, we have to get closure tonight. We, I'm going to get closure. You're going to say, dad, you're awesome before the sun goes down tonight because I don't want the sun to go down on your wrath, right? That, that is not what this text is saying. The, the, the spirit of it, the clear intention of that passage is don't give it a long leash. Don't let it live forever. Don't nurse this thing. Don't coddle unrighteous anger. And then he goes on to say, you see those next words, don't give the devil an opportunity. Sometimes it's translated with the word, don't give the devil a foothold. That's the, it's the Greek word tapos, from which we get the English word topography. In other words, don't give the devil the high ground. Don't, don't relinquish a base of operations. This is a good place from which we can fight. Don't give up this spot for the enemy to work. It's almost like you could imagine you know, Satan coming into the church. He comes in, walks into a local church. He hears people whispering about other people, slandering other people, angry at other people, and he just walks in and he's like, thank you, I can take it from here, right? That, that's kind of what Paul is saying. Don't, don't give him the pleasure of this kind of attitude. Walk in love by speaking the truth, Walk in love by battling anger. Walk in love by working honestly and living generously. Working honestly and living generously. So in the musical production, how many of you have seen Les Mis? So in the musical production Les Mis, maybe the rest of you might be familiar a little bit with the story. So in that story, Jean Valjean, who's one of the main characters in the story, he undergoes this absolute life-changing thing that happens after he steals a loaf of bread to feed his sister and her seven children. And that act of stealing, he's caught, changes his entire life, his whole biography. And then his, his character goes dark. He experiences a lot of painful things. His character is dark. And later on, he's going to steal again. And there's no sense of remorse or apology. He's going to steal from somebody who opens the house. A priest says, come on in. We've got the table spread for you. Come and stay in this room. And he steals from that guy, a person who's been completely and totally hospitable to him. You just imagine, so you mix these kinds of things that you have going on, the stew in the first century where you have, where you have conditions of poverty and, and you have a first century setting where there's no government assistance at all. There's no welfare at all. And it's not surprising when you have those two in the mix, it's not surprising that Paul has to look at church folks and say, you may have gotten along by stealing in the past, but not anymore. That that was the old you, but that's, that's not the new you. you. To be true to your new self, you leave that life behind. And one of the beauties and glories of the first century church is they said, 
we'll take care of you. If you're suffering and you're destitute, we've got a list of widows who can't meet their bills and we've got a church that's giving. We'll put you on that list and make sure your needs are provided for. They were, they were trying to come around and do the full circle care, but they said, but no more stealing. No more stealing. That's not you anymore, right? Paul, he brings these believers full circle because he doesn't just say, no more stealing. He says, let the one who stole, stole no lo- steal no longer. And he says, but instead let him work honestly with his own hands. And he doesn't stop there either. He says, let him work honestly with his hands so that he can provide for anyone who is in need. He brings this thief full circle. A commentator said it this way, I think captured this really well. The motive for work is not individual profit in this text, but communal well-being. The thief doesn't just stop stealing, he becomes a philanthropist. Isn't that rich? Christianity, friends, Christianity should be synonymous with generosity. Synonymous with generosity, right? Not a scarcity mindset, but a mindset that says, hey, we've got more. If you need more, we've got more. Go back for seconds. Everybody take a to-go plate, right? There's a sense of generosity in the household of faith. You had people in the book of Acts and they say, hold on, hold on. You got needs. I'm going to go sell this field. I got this sweet pad over here. I'm going to sell that. I'm going to give the proceeds to you and to your family. It's beautiful generosity. It's marked the church for 2,000 years. What do churches look like when they're, when they're demonstrating the generous heart of God? Well, they're, they're blessing their city. They're doing prison ministry programs. They're helping fund orphan care and adoption and foster care ministry. They're meeting needs. They're giving blankets to the homeless in the city, right? They're setting up training centers for future ministers. There's training centers for future missionaries. All kinds of stuff, right? Water wells, so, Brook Hills, we just finished, I don't know if you know this, we just finished our fourth Roots and Reach project. And that means we're about to build three water wells in the, in the African country of Chad with never thirst. Like, you did that. As a church, we, we did that. And where do we turn our eyes next? Next, here's the fifth thing that we get to work on together. We get to help and partner with, with a ministry that's pulling young ladies out of the trafficking industry. That's needed work, but look, that's where the church belongs. Generosity for the purpose of reflecting kingdom compassion. It's glorious. I wish we had time to unpack all the commands that are here. I've got to move a little bit faster than I've been moving so far. So Paul, he goes on, he talks about unwholesome speech. So just stop there. Think about that now and think about that later on. What would it look like for all the words you use to be sent, to be pressed into the service of building up your brothers and sisters in Christ so that they leave with grace, that it may give grace to those who hear. What a high calling for your mouth, for my mouth as followers of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And what do you pick up in the context Study the context of our passage. What is it that vexes the Holy Spirit? What vexes the Holy Spirit in this text is a loveless church. He's grieved by a loveless church. It makes sense if we're familiar, right, with the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where God says to his people, he says to Corinth, hey, I know you love prophecy, you love miracles, you've got all the gifts firing up and there's so much power going on in the life of the church and there's this massive growth and he says, but if there's not love, I'm out. 
you're traveling to the other side of the world, you got missionary zeal, you're ready to die for the cause, but if there's not love, I'm out. It's clarifying the terms, because he says all it is is just clanging cymbals, banging drums, you're just trying to get attention from a watching world and attention from one another as you outstrip each other in spiritual progress. He says a loveless church is what grieves the Holy Spirit. In other words, through all these commands, what is Paul saying? He's saying, hey, Ephesus, he's saying by extension, hey, Brook Hills, meet the new you. This is you now. This is us growing up into the likeness. This is what it looks like when the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. We start getting marked by these characteristics. And note, Paul, this is so classic for the Apostle Paul. I hope you've noticed this before. He is grounding all these commands in the indicatives of grace. All the imperatives are rooted in the indicatives. He's not just, you know, Cracking whips and, and telling, you know, barking orders. He's saying, this is what God has done. Look at chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved. That's a given. You're dearly loved. Imitate him. You're already dearly loved. Look at the next verse. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and gave himself for us. He, yeah, you can almost push back and say, well, Paul, if you want these people to actually obey these commands, you've got to stop taking the edge off. Lean into the command a little bit before you start singing Jesus loves you again. Right? But Paul is not willing to just bark orders. He's saying, I want you to obey and imitate him because you're dearly loved. It's driven by grace, not driven by guilt. It's not shame-driven Christianity. Look, we can say hard things, and we need to say hard things. We need to be corrected by God's word. I need that. You need that. We need that as a church family. But the gospel that announces that we have sinned against the holy God doesn't leave us under the impression that sin has the last word. Grace always speaks last and loudest. I hope that's true for us as a church into the infinite future, that grace always speaks last and loudest. And loudest, walk in love. Here's the second one. Shine his lights. Shine his lights. I love those words in verse eight. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is in your notes. Paul uses identity language. You are, his words, light now. Walk as children of light because that's what you are. You are light Walk, live as children of light. You know, so many believers struggle with assurance. Struggle with assurance of God's acceptance. Don't know how God feels about them because they they fail to grasp their new identity that they have in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important for us to look at texts like this in Scripture and see what's going on there. I had a woman who I've exchanged emails with occasionally I've had a phone call with her. She doesn't live in the city of Birmingham. She is a victim of abuse, a survivor of abuse. We've had a couple of conversations. This woman lives with tremendous pain in her life, tremendous burden of shame in her life. And she emailed, occasionally she listens to the sermons. And she emailed this past week, and you can just see this is, this is where her battle is. Satan gets in her ear, and Satan, as some of you well know, not just from scripture, but from your own personal experience, Satan has a unique set of skills, doesn't he? He's called the accuser. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He's quite good at this. The accuser of the brethren. 
There might be people here today, right here in this room, who you would say, Matt, I, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. I want to follow him with all my heart. But the words, you are light, doesn't describe my inner world. It's dark in here. I just want you to know, to be honest, that doesn't sound like it describes me. I don't know who said this originally. Satan knows your name, but calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, but calls you by your name. That is rich gospel truth. And what does he call us in verse eight? Children of light. How beautiful is that? Children of light. A couple of years ago, there was a fascinating interview if you, into music or if you like classical music, which I love classical music, there was an interview with a woman named Mitsuko Uchida and, and she's a phenomenal, she's world recognized, one of the most celebrated and revered musicians of our day. And they were interviewing her two years ago because she was turning 70 years old. And after all these years of performing, she's one of the masters of Mozart in particular. And the interview was talking about her and her loves and her pianos and culture and all this stuff. And then she talked about the differences between her favorite, what she calls the four saints, the four greatest composers of history. And she names them. And then she talks about the difference between Beethoven and Mozart. And she says, in Beethoven, one listens to Beethoven and one gets the impression that he was working at every note, erasing and then writing in a new one and then trying and testing and over the course of months and weeks, just plotting every note. And she says, when one listens to Mozart, you get the impression that it was entirely unpremeditated. It was just this unbidden artistry that just comes flowing through Mozart. And she says, years ago, she tells a story about years ago, she said, I was there at um, the Birmingham Coliseum, uh, rather the Berlin Coliseum, and she's, she's there, and she's this massive event, and she said, I'm waiting in the wings, we're about to go take the stage for the performance, and she's gonna perform Mozart's um, magisterial 488. And she said, I asked Kurt Sanderling, the conductor, backstage, right before we went on stage, she said, how could anyone write something as beautiful as the opening to K488? And he replied, of course, Mozart didn't write it. And then he used a German phrase that meant God was moving the pen for him. In other words, there had to be, this conductor says, there had to be something else at play, this deeper inspiration, this, deep, this artist under the artist drawing forth wells of beauty and artistry. Something else was at work in the masterpiece that was K488. Friends, in our text, the power under our passage is not willpower. It is not merely human strength. There's an artist underneath there. There's this God. We can read all the way to the end of this passage, and you can almost get the impression, if you're not careful, that Paul's just doling out chores you know, he's got, he's got promiscuity, disinfectant, and he's got chores for anti-idolatry, anti-greed chores, exercises, right, moral regimen. You can get that impression, but note the identity language. We've seen some of it, but I'm going to show you a little bit more. Just look down at the page. Verse 4, chapter 5, obscene talking and crude joking are not suitable. That speech doesn't suit you, suited you before doesn't suit you now. Verse three, sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper 
for saints. It's what you are, saints. It's breathing in water is proper for fish. Fish breathe in water as is proper for fish. And put away impurity and sexual immorality is proper for saints. That's what you are. You've been changed. Verse 8 and 9. Don't partner up with darkness. You were that. You were once darkness. Now you are light. Walk as children of light. Here's the note for us to take away. It's the love of God that creates children of light. It's the love of God that creates children of light. Walk in love as Christ loved us is right smack dab in the center of our text. And walk in light as children of light. Interestingly, the name Mutsuku in Japanese is translated shining child or child of light. Love and light, that's the new self. You being true to your new self, created in the image of God, is love and light. If God were writing a biography, the name of it could be, of your life, it could be love and light. That's what we're becoming, growing up into by the grace of God. So here's another point for us just to think about. Chores don't change people. Grace changes people. Chores don't change people. Grace changes people. So Christian friend, this week when you're tempted to speak harshly, when, when you're tempted to look at your suffering, to look at your trials and lash out at God or lash out at others, when you're tempted to keep your distance from God because of shame and because of sin, Paul is saying, remember the gospel. This is what drives, this is what motivates the Christian life. Look, for some of us, and I think this is particularly true, this is a struggle for me, I remember keenly in high school and in college, this struggle. You'll be tempted to think sin is what I do when I'm being authentic, and godliness is what I do when I'm faking it. Friend, you never get that idea from the New Testament understanding of Christianity. Here, here's the truth, and I'll quote it in the language of one of my historical heroes. I've got many of them, but at the top is John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And here's what Newton said. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not yet what I shall be, but I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Christian friend, you have a new identity in Christ. You, you're not Satan's plaything. You were darkness. Now you are light. So what's our call? Be true, not to yourself. Be true to your new self.